Women Make Waves is an NC Fit podcast. What's up, listeners? Welcome back to the Women Make Waves podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay, and today, Laura, Ariel, and myself are sitting down with Amelia Boone. Now, you may know Amelia for her incredible performance in obstacle racing and as an ultra marathon runner, but what you might not know is Amelia's struggle with eating disorders on and off throughout her athletic career. She is so vulnerable in today's conversation and hopes to share what her experience has been like, touch the lives of others, and inspire change in those around her. We talk about living in alignment, finding a support system, juggling athletics and disordered eating, negative self-talk, you name it, we talked about it, and I could not be more grateful for how vulnerable Amelia was throughout all of today's episode. My eyes were welled full of tears, my jaw was dropped, and I am so incredibly inspired by her story and her strength. If you love this story just as much as I did, please make sure to rate and review the podcast as it continues to help us get guests like Amelia for the show. If you loved it, share it, show your friends, show your family, send it in a message, show it on Instagram. We love to see it and we cannot wait for more episodes of the Women Make Waves podcast. Enjoy. What's up, listeners? We are sitting down today with Amelia Boone. She's a four-time obstacle racing world champion, ultra runner, and ultimate savage. So we're here to start a conversation. And Amelia, you know, the first question we always love to ask our guests is, how are you making waves? Yeah, that's a, uh, that's a great question. And I think that depending on what phase of life you probably caught me in, it would be a completely different answer, uh, like at different uh, points. I think now the big thing that I pride myself on in terms of making waves, especially within the endurance community. And the thing that really like lights my soul on fire is talking about um, mental health and body image and relating to athletics and relating to, um, you know, in particular, it's like I've, I have a very long history of um, struggling with an eating disorder and being in recovery for an eating disorder. And when it comes to athletics, it's something that for many years was not talked about. Um, and uh, so it's been very um, fulfilling in some ways, but also very challenging to come out and speak about that and to kind of open up my life uh, to people. Um, but it's, I think it's something that is, is very, very near and dear to my heart. Um, and so that's really right now is what is kind of like lighting my soul on fire. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. I, I'm a big Brene Brown fan mm-hmm. um, and all of the work she does on vulnerability. And she talks so often about the vulnerability hangover, like when oh, you yeah. put it out there and then the next day you wake up, you're like, oh my God, like after you hit post or whatever, you're like, oh my God, what have I done? Yeah. Um, did you have that moment? Absolutely. I think I thought about it long and hard. Um, you know, I had a, a very long period of, to kind of like grapple with how, how do I present this? Do I present this? What do I share? And then also knowing in the back of my head, like you can't unring that bell once you put it out there. And this is what I always say to people that, you know, whoever, if you're ever going to share, if you're ever going to be vulnerable, understand that you can't take it back once it's out there. So, and unfortunately you have this fear that people will view you differently or think of you differently or judge you or, um, and that's just something that you kind of have to like move through. 
Uh, and I remember definitely there have been times where I'm like, oh my God, what did I do? What did I do? And then I like, it's just like you go through it and you're like, oh, it wasn't that bad. <laughs> you know? I remember from following you because I've been following you for a long time now, kind of when that conversation started to change on your social media and when you started to become very vulnerable. And I remember just thinking in my head, like, wow, like I like this girl, but now I really like, like this is cool. And coming from someone also with a background eating disorder for 15 years of my life, it was personally just incredible to see and something where I, I, I just took a deep breath and was like, okay, we're not alone. This is amazing. So long-winded way of kind of asking, like, what was that turning point for you? Like, where were you when you decided, like, I'm just going to do this. I'm going to put it out there right now. And, you know, knowing that there's so much that goes with that with fear of judgment and fear of, you know, like, people won't think this, this, this. Um, what, how did you get there? Yeah, I spent many years feeling like, there was this kind of secret part of me that I was very ashamed of that I couldn't talk about because not that I had ever like intentionally created this narrative about me. And I was like, Oh, she's a badass and she runs all these races and she's a world champion. And like, she feels no pain and she's the queen of pain. And people would say that about me. And I'm like, Oh, that's nice. But I never, it never really felt true because I also knew uh, underneath this, like I was struggling and struggling very, very hard. And, um, but I also realized that if I put that out there, then I'm like, okay, well that completely changes the narrative around me and what, and who I am. But it also for me felt more true. Uh, because I spent many years and part of actually my eating disorder, I think was, it was very much me trying to, um, get rid of the feeling side and the scared side and everything that I didn't want to be. Cause I could just like numb out the emotions. And so now I was like, it was coming back and reclaiming the fact that like, I can be a feeler, I can be a highly sensitive person. And that doesn't take away that I'm also a very strong woman and a very capable woman and very intelligent and, and learning to reconcile those and that those were not mutually exclusive things. And um, I don't think that I, I realized that if I waited to talk about this until I was quote unquote fully recovered, I would never talk about it because I don't actually know what full recovery looks like yet. You know, That's such a huge conversation. And I think that's what is so beautiful about having the Women Make Waves podcast is that we've been able to mesh the side of the masculine energy because we all come from this fitness background where it is a lot more about the masculine energy, the doing. And having the ability now to kind of juxtapose that with the feminine energy of being and holding space for each other, that has been super, super powerful. Have you had, um, or what kind of support system did you have going into this to enable you to feel, you know, like you had the support and that you could take this on? Yeah. I mean, I, I think, I, I have a few very close girlfriends who, um, you know, we, we're always there challenging each other and, you know, supporting each other and talking through, you know, like things that actually matter in life, like very, very deep friendships uh, that I cherish um, fully. And 
you know, it was in talking when I was making decisions to talk about certain things and I would run it by them. And, um, you know, we would have these conversations and then understanding also. And I remember one time, one of my friends told me, she was like, you're gonna feel this big, just like release. Cause it's something that you've been holding in for so long. And I think that that's like, look, we're, we're all made of energy in some way or another. And when you're holding in a secret, when you're holding in a part of yourself and then like, and you feel like you can't show it to the world, um, it eats your soul, I think after a while. And so I think that it was just really having, um, you know, a support system being like, look, whatever happens, like we're here and we're here for you. And you are, you know, still like, you don't change in our eyes, you know? And I think that that's like, that's so important, so critical. Um, and really like, you know, it's given me strength through all of this. I love that. Um, I got so excited when you said that we're all just balls of energy because I say that all of the time. I'm always like, we're just vibrating balls of energy and we just need to vibrate a little bit higher and then other people will vibrate higher. So the fact that you were so vulnerable and you were able to put that story out there, um, even like Laura hit that nail on the head, like it influenced so many people. And I think, um, and just a little background, like I'm building a business and a lot of my business comes from social media. So a big part of it is that balance of like what's sharing too much, what's too vulnerable, but then what can possibly help somebody and what can help them get through whatever they're working through. And that the ability to be okay with people having whatever thoughts they're going to have about you and you still having your support system, I think is really huge. And just looking at what's come out of it for you, what has been the biggest release, like you said, of being able to be vulnerable and sharing this with the world? Yeah. I mean, I think for me, it, it really is just, I don't, I feel in alignment. Like I feel like my body, my mind, who I am is in alignment. And, and, and what you see, what people see through podcasts, through media, through social media is what I am living every single day. And that has always been very, very important to me my entire life that I want to be able to feel like it just completely kind of at peace. And, um, I think that it, it took me a long time to realize that, you know, look, we're all humans. We all struggle. We're all going to have our ups and downs. Um, everyone has flaws. Everyone has things to work on. Everyone has quote unquote demons. And the more that we are able to talk about that and share, like, I think the less alone we feel because especially today in the age of something like social media, you see everybody's curated life and you're like, what is wrong with me? Like, why, why does everybody else have it all figured out? And I'm just here bumbling along being like, meh. Um, and then it's really like, that's not it. That's not it at all. That's not it at all. And even though we all know that it can be really, really hard to believe it. And so I think for me, it's, it's the biggest thing has really just been kind of like my true authentic self. And I really feel that now. I um, have just been sitting here like jaw dropped because I love everything that you've been saying. Um, I also am a huge mental health advocate outside of NC Fit. I'm a therapist. And so I work a lot in the mental health field. And what I have found, especially with athletes and especially with female athletes, is how prevalent 
disordered eating is. And it's so, I mean, any, any sort of disorder is difficult to, to deal with, but especially in the athletic field, because you need it, right? Like you need sustenance Mm -hmm. and your brain is telling you, yes, I need more or no, that's too much. Or, you know, that that's enough quit. Um, So how have you kind of found balance in a world where your body so needs this thing that is so triggering in the mind? Yeah. I I mean, it's a great question because it's, it is, it's so hard. Um, And I think that it, especially in the athletic world, you know, we, you, you get comments all the time, like, oh, you look so fit or you look like an athlete. And there have been times when I was like at my sickest and people would be like, you look so fit. And I'm like, I am starving myself and I am not healthy on the inside. And, and it's so like, for me, what I've had to realize um, with that is that like, I have just had to make kind of a non-negotiable plan with myself is that I work with a dietitian, and it's like, you must meet the minimum of X every single day for eating to be even able to train, you know? And so it's always like this baseline And I tell myself, if I'm not hitting that, if I'm starting to relapse, like I'm not allowed to do this anymore. So I've almost like given myself that carrot being like, if you want to run, if you want to go out and run your hundred mile races, like you need to be feeding yourself appropriately. And, um, just kind of like looking at as that is non-negotiable and you know, it's, it's still always a work in progress. Um, but for me, you know, like I think so many people and especially if you are athletes are say, oh, I don't know what to eat. Like, I have no idea. Am I eating too much? Am I eating too little? Like, and it, there's part of me just being like, this is the plan. This is the bare minimum I have to do. And then I can go above that. But like, we're not going under. And for me, that has like really made it so it's like, I keep my eye and focus on what is important and that's being able to compete. Absolutely. Are there any other like somatic or mindfulness practices that you also practice in tandem with this non-negotiable? Yeah, I do. Um, so I used to always joke that running was my therapy, uh, which I mean, and I know a lot of people joke about that, but yeah, it is running can be extremely therapeutic. You know, fitness can be extremely therapeutic, but it is not therapy. <laughs> it is very, you know, like a lot of times for me, I'd be like, oh, I'm out running and I'm working through things in my brain when in reality I was just shut, shutting it off. So now um, I actually journal before I go out for like my training for that day to kind of see like, where's my mind at? What am I thinking about? Um, and then I really focus on like when I'm out running, like being curious, like what am I thinking about right now? Like, am I enjoying this? Am I punishing myself? Am I, so I think it's just like looking at the intentions and the motivations behind what you do is really like important for me to kind of like tease out because I know for athletes, athletic or athletes who suffer with, from disordered eating, it is really hard sometimes to separate athletics from the eating. Um, so, and for me, it's always been about like intentions and, you know, and, and being really, really in tune with myself and being brutally honest about certain things. That was actually going to be my next question for you is how do you marry those two parts of you, right? Like you're an athlete and, you know, I hate to say, you know, I am X, Y, Z, but like you have an eating disorder, like those things are so, 
um, they're like vines. They're, they're like entwined together. And I know like I've been in programs where they've cut me cold turkey off of exercise. And like the whole time I'm screaming like, wait, 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 wait. Like I'm an athlete. Like I, I'm, I do this. This is fine. But then there's another part of me that's like, oh shit, like actually is this fine right now? So I'm just very curious as to how you A, maintain that type of um, that separation, but also how you kind of first noticed that, hey, maybe I'm not doing this for reasons that are, you know, healthy for me and, and good for me. Yeah. I think, you know, I have a, a very long history of this. So when I was much younger, there was that part of me that, uh, you know, when I was like in my teens, that was like exercise is about burning X number of calories and blah, 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 blah. You know, and I got, and, and then I was in treatment programs when I was younger, they very much were like the cold Turkey. Um, and I didn't. So for many years, I, I did not have any type of exercise routine in my life, um, all throughout college. Um, and when I decided to get back into running and, and, you know, and I came into athletics later in life, you know, I was past law school, I was in my mid twenties. And, um, I think, you know, at first I like, didn't really notice that it was there. I mean, I, the, the eating disorder was pretty quiet at the time. Um, but as I kind of, as I started winning races, as I started, as my athletic career started taking off, the eating disorder voices started getting louder again. And I was like, Oh my God, are these, are these intertwined? And I don't want them to be intertwined because then the injuries started and I couldn't even compete. So I, um, you know, I, I, when I went back into treatment a few years ago, I, I sought out a program that worked specifically with athletes and everything was always about like, what is your intention? And from what I've really learned and what I, and what I do now is that there are certain forms of movement that I would do like, because I love them. And then there are others that are just like punishment. Um, you know, so for instance, you will never catch me on a spin bike in, inside because like, that's just punishment for me. That's, there's no joy in that. The only reason I would be doing that would be to try and change my body. So I, I guess I, when it comes to exercise and fitness, the question that I ask myself is, would I still be doing this if it had potentially zero impact on the way my body looked? Um, and if the answer is yes, then I'm like, okay, then I have like a good, I have a, there, I have a good reason. Like I would run regardless if it like, you know, if, if they told me running would make you gain weight, like, would you do it? And I'd be like, yes, because I love it. But there are other forms of movement that would not do that. So it's for me, like trying to separate those out is totally different for us, for everybody. Like some people, a lot of people are probably listening to this being like, I hate running. I would never run, you know, unless like somebody was chasing me <laughs> and, uh, and that's great that like, then don't do it. Uh, so that's kind of how I separate it out or I try to, you know. That is such a, first of all, that's a super powerful way to look at it is, are you doing this because it fuels you and it nourishes your soul? Or is it something that is a form of punishment? And a really big thing, um, so the business I'm building is I'm a functional nutrition coach. And mm -hmm. one of the biggest things that I find with a lot of my clients is this, like picture of the perfect person that everybody goes off of. And it can be really hard to detach your identity from what you look like in the mirror. And that's a conversation I think that we don't have very often is like, you are you 
and you are the most perfect you whether or not you look a certain way in the mirror. So what, if you have any, I'd be curious to know if you have any tips or anything that you've been working on yourself to be able to consistently love that person in that you see in the mirror and also detach from like what that looks like. Yeah. Yeah. And that, and it's so hard because I, you know, my body has changed over the past year and it is, it's strange. Sometimes you feel kind of foreign in your own, what you're like used to. And I know, and it it can be very, very triggering, but something that I come back to all the time, and this is like maybe a little woo woo, but whatever is, um, I, (laughs) I, uh, you know, I had this realization one day that like, I am like, and this sounds kind of depressing, but bear with me. You only have the only one certain thing in your life that you have for the rest of your life is you. That is the only thing that you can be certain that there is going to be is that like, it is me until the day that I die. Like anybody else in life, everything else is not a guarantee. And so I have, I'm 37. I would hope I have, you know, another good 50 plus years, you know, maybe longer out of me. And I want, I don't want to be at war with that person every single day because I only have myself for the rest of my life. And like, so I better first make peace with her and second, like love her ferociously and give myself that grace that I give to other people. And look, it's it, like, I have a hard time with it, but every time that I, I notice myself like starting to judge or I notice myself like being really, um, you know, not giving myself grace, I'm like, what is the point of that? What is that self-flagellation going to do for me in the long run? And, you know, 40 years from now, am I going to look back and be like, man, I wish I had beat myself up some more over things that I did wrong, you know? Like, no. <laughs> yeah, I had um, one of my coaches, one of my mindfulness gurus, if you will, mm-hmm. she asked me, you know, if we could take your thoughts out of your head and craft them into a person, would you even want to take that person to lunch? Like, would oh you God. even want to sit with that person? And I was like, oh no, <laughs> I've got some work to do. Um, and so that's been a huge practice for me too, is like, how many repeat thoughts do we have a day? And how many of those repeat thoughts are actually kind towards ourselves? Mm-hmm. And from what I found, it's not very often unless you bring some mindful awareness to them. So what was your kind of first step in bringing that awareness in? Because so many of our thoughts are so unconscious, right? They're racing through our brain all the time. So what brought that into your awareness? Yeah, I don't, you know, I, I, I think that it was so unconscious for me all the time until I actually, I remember, you know, like, saying them out loud or writing them down and, or like talking them to a friend and they're like, you really should stop speaking to yourself that way. And I was like, well, it's all, I was like, it's all a joke. It's self-deprecation, blah, 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 blah. And she's like, yeah, but when you repeat that over to yourself over and over and over again, like you don't realize that you are subconsciously listening to it and believing it. And, um, so for me, it's been really just like, Oh, sometimes I'll have, I will actually, some of my friends will interrupt me if they notice me saying something about myself. Like I will have them like cue and be like, come on, Amelia. Um, 
And then also like I, if I start to, I get caught in like thought loops and thought patterns and just spinning and rumination. And I will actually <laughs> say to myself, spinning, spinning, because I realize that and like just calling myself out that I'm stuck in that cycle and then like getting up and physically removing myself into a different place if I can to try and just like break up that pattern. Um, and that's been pretty useful for me. I'm curious um, if this, and I know you've heard about, you've heard of this and I'm, sh I'm sure, but um, I've had a lot of people be like, you should name that that voice in your head, you know, like mm. you should, you should do that and talk back to it. And I was like, what? <laughs> like that, like, or like yeah. worked for me, but I have, <laughs> I was just like, no, like I'm not going to like call it Brian. Um, but like, there has been a lot like for me of just being like, okay, like I hear you talking about what I ate. Like, thank you so much for coming. It's great to see you. Like, can you screw off now and let me like live the rest of my life? But I was just wondering if like you had, if that is a way that you cope or kind of like can separate those thoughts for you at all. And mm -hmm. yeah, I have a hard time with like the, the, the two, like the different speaking to myself in two different voices. I do. I have done some work around you, like naming you know, like kind of like inner child work in terms of like naming, like what, what age is that that's talking to you right now, um, about needs and things like that. It doesn't come as natural to me. The thing that actually really helps me are visual reminders. So like I have a bunch of like stickers and sayings all over my house and in my mirror. Um, like I wrote on like in like erasable marker that's like, the more you eat, the more adventures you get to have. Um, and then it's like on my fridge, there's a sticker that says eating is not, or, um, eating is not optional, you know? So it's just like, for me, I find like, if I keep visual cues around, then when I start to spin, then I notice them immediately and like can pull myself out. That's really, really big. And one of the biggest things that I find with a lot of my clients is that they're either there's either a negative association with eating because of whatever the emotion that's tied to it. Maybe you feel guilty, maybe you feel um, uncomfortable, whatever it is, but we tie these emotions to our food. And one of the biggest questions that I've recently been asking clients and even of myself, because I fall into this more times than I'd like to admit. Um, but it's, like, why can't this be enjoyable? Why can't I feel amazing and go run however many miles, a hundred plus miles, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, and I love, I don't want to skip over that your focus right now is on nourishing your body. It's not on the punishment side because it gets to be nourishing and it gets to be something that fuels the adventures that you have. And that's such a powerful way to look at food is it's not a punishment and it's not a way to punish yourself. It's literally the mechanism by which you can get to go on now all of these amazing adventures and have all of these amazing experiences. And that's really powerful. Um, so thank you for sharing that because I think that's, that's something that a lot of us I think do struggle with whether it's eating too fast or eating um, distracted because you don't really want to pay mind to whatever it is that you're doing because it makes you uncomfortable. Um, I, I just don't want to skip over 
the fact that you are allowing yourself to be uncomfortable for the sake of nourishing because you know that that's what you need. Yeah. Yeah. No. And absolutely. I think that it's, I have been the look like I have, I have seen what, you know, not feeding your body appropriately does. And I have also seen that even in your mind, my, my disorder was actually really never motivated by like weight and getting to a certain weight and things like that. But I know for a lot of people it is, but I do realize like, it's never enough. Like if you suffer from some type of disorder, like you may think like, well, if I drop X number of pounds then I will be totally fine and happy. No, you get to that weight and then it's never, it is never going to be enough. So it is this going to be this cycle where you're never happy you feel like shit. And so it's like, what is the end goal in that? You know, like, and, and I, and so sometimes if, when I start to have some type of like disordered thought or like, well, maybe if you just did it, I think I'm like, no, you have been down that road and you, it was so miserable and there was nothing good that came out of it. And so it's like, let's try this a different way. <laughs> it's so true. Like, um, there's a cool running quote and I use it all the time. If mm-hmm. you're not enough without it, you will never be enough with it. And that I think whether or not you have disordered eating is such a powerful concept. Like if you think that once you get there, once you finally get that carrot, that you're going to be happy, you're never going to be happy because you're constantly focusing on what you don't have. Mm-hmm. As opposed to if you're constantly in the state of, I'm so grateful that I get to do this so that I can do this. You're in a state of abundance. And like, this is the woo woo that I got. We got, Lindsay and I both got so excited when you said that because we're like, this is like, it's all about the balance of the woo woo and the science. We need Mm -hmm. both of those things. And um, I would love to know if you have any like gratitude practices or anything like that, that you would like to share, because I think that's something that's really powerful that we can use with food, but with anything in life. Yeah. Yeah. I have done a bunch of different gratitude practices and and it changes depending on what is called to me. It used to be like a morning practice of then I would like write like a few things that I was grateful for every single day. And it would kind of like set my, my, like set me out on like a good path for the day. Um, I realized at a certain point I started to feel like it was forced. Like I started, like it didn't resonate as much with me. And I was like, what is wrong with me? Am I, have I out gratitude myself? And then I realized like, no, you can like just change it. So another thing that I then changed it to that I do is um, a practice called GLAD, which is gratitude, learning, accomplishment, and delight. And so it's at the end of the day and I write one thing I'm grateful for, one thing I learned, one thing I accomplished, and like something that gave me delight in that day. And it's kind of like just a nice little reflection. And so I'm always looking for, I'm always changing like the gratitude practice. Uh, And I think it's super, super helpful. Um, But I also have to realize like I can't, it can reach a point where it can feel forced. And so, and then that's counterproductive, you know, nobody really talks about that side of it sometimes. (laughs) Absolutely. I mean, it can be such a, because we, and I, this is so so funny that we're having this conversation because I feel like this is a conversation I have a lot is we are so in that masculine energy of doing and checking things off lists that it can be really easy for practices like mindfulness and gratitude, even meditation sometimes to fall into the like, well, I just have to check it off the list and get it done. And it can, 
it can be really hard because then you kind of end up resenting it because you're like, oh, well, this is just another thing on my list. But that's something that I think has been a really big shift, at least for me this year, has been, okay, how do I make it feel good every single day? And maybe it doesn't, like you said, maybe it's not the gratitude practice in the morning when it starts to feel like a chore. And then you get to ask like, okay, how can I bring this back? How can I recenter and bring it back to what feels good? Um, that is, that's something I think that everybody can use is how do you make it work for you all the time? It's okay to change your mind. Like it's okay for it not to be the same all of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, are there any others or were those like yeah. the good ones? I mean, those are like the big ones, but you're right. Like I, I think a big thing for me is actually like sometimes being able to take a step, take the foot off the gas and be like, I mean, I am all, I love doing the work. I love working on myself. I love trying to like learn about myself and and be a better version, but also giving myself grace that like, it is okay to like sit on the couch and watch stupid TV shows. And like, you don't have to be obsessed with fixing yourself. Um, And so kind of balancing that too. And that just being like, I'm working on being a better person and doing this and doing this and blah, 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 blah. And then just being like, you know, sometimes it's, it is okay. Like you, you can overwork on yourself. (laughs) So just like sit around, have a beer and enjoy life, you know? (laughs) Absolutely. I've watched the work, quote unquote, the work Mm, become like such a substitution for any other like disordered thinking or, or anything. Um, you know, you touched on it a little bit earlier. I remember going through just like a really gnarly breakup a few years ago. And I was like not sleeping, not eating. The only time I felt okay was when I was working out. So, mm-hmm. and that was like, again, like a numbing out agent. And I went home uh, to visit my hometown and everyone's like, you look so good. Like you're so lean And I was like, in my head, I'm like, I am arguably the most unhealthy I've ever been. I'm living off of like ice cubes and like (laughs) four hours of sleep, you know, in the last three days. So when we start talking about getting into this, I, I know you talked about it earlier, this mindset of if I lose enough or if I do enough of the work and I get to this personal development state of enlightenment or whatever we want to call it. Uh, I don't, I don't think I'll ever get there. It's, it's a process. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, um, what have you found? Like, has that motivation changed at all? Um, from one of, if I get to this place, I'll be happy enough to, I am where I am. I'm here right now. And this is, you know, this is what I have. Yeah. Um, I, I'm actually so glad that you brought that up because I was going to talk about this. Uh, is this, I used to think that the goal in life was happiness. Like I used to, my entire life, I was like, my goal in life is to be happy. And when I, I've checked this box, this box, this box. Once I check this box, I will be happy. And then I, the thing that I have come to learn, you know, in this past year or so is that you know, happiness is going to come and go. It's not a state, it's not a constant state of being and that there are going to be ebbs and flows and there are going to be, the problem with happiness is you can be super happy and then it's going to go away at some point because there's going to be some hardship that comes up and you're going to be in a depressed state. So if you make happiness your goal, you're screwed 
because it's never, it's never going to be a constant state in your life. So I think for me, I've just tried to reframe like what it is. Yes. Like people are like, I hope one day you can be happy. And I, somebody said that to me the other day and I'm like, I am happy a lot of days. And I was like, and I'm not happy other days. And I was like, I don't think happiness is the goal in life. You know, I think that it, like the, because the fact that it is going to change and it's never going to be that stable constant. And so for me now, it's more just like, I don't know if I call it peace or contentment, um, but more of just acceptance and like enthusiasm for like riding the highs and the lows. Because that's the thing. It's like when you're at a very low place in your life and you're like, this is really shitty, you can still have enthusiasm thinking like, but it's going to get better at some point, you know? And like, <laughs> so that's kind of like where I am. It's like very trying to be like in this present moment and not thinking like that there's some tangible thing that I have to get to, to like reach enlightenment for sure. Absolutely. It's, it's very much the Buddhist principle of impermanence, yeah. right? Like right. being able to accept that right now is all I have. What I had yesterday is gone. What's coming in mm -hmm. the future. I don't know. But what I do know is this moment. Mm -hmm. Um, and it sounds like you have that optimism of even when I'm in the downtimes, I know that the way this dichotomy works, I will also have an upside <laughs> at some point. Um, what is it that, that got you to that place? Because I know, you know, when we talk about that spiraled thinking and you're in that place, it is so hard to take a bird's eye view and be objective about what's happening in the situation. Yeah. I mean, so when I, I think that a part of me, when I went back into like, um, a treatment facility and I had told myself, I'm like, okay, I'm fixing the eating disorder. I was here like, I'm going to be in recovery. I'm like opening myself up. I've learned all these things. Like I'm going to allow myself to love other people. I'm going to put myself out there. I'm going to be vulnerable. I'm going to be my true authentic self. And, um, and I did that and I, and it was great. And then I met somebody and I fell in love and I was like, look, it all paid off. I mean, I'm running well and everything is so fantastic. And I am in this like happiest state ever. And I was like, and it was totally worth it. And I've now reached this like pinnacle. Um, and then I went through a really, really awful breakup and I all of a sudden was like, well, no, 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 no. Like I was so happy. Like I was so happy. And like, now it's all gone, you know? And like, why did I go through all of this like treatment and recovery and doing this to like get to this place? And now it's taken away from me. And then I realized I'm like, okay, well like part of it changed, but like, that doesn't mean that you're not going to be happy again in the future. And that doesn't mean that, you know, like, it's just, like you said, it's all this impermanence. And so I think it letting go of this idea that if I checked all these boxes, then I would, you know, be result like, you know, one plus two equals three. It's never like that in life, you know? <laughs> so that's been really important for me to like, kind of like, just remember for sure. Going back to what you were saying earlier too, how you were like, you know, you are the person you're going to have for your whole life, right? Like no matter what happens externally, like whatever avenue that is in your life, like it's what's in here that's going to guide you and help you overcome, you know, whatever it is. So it sounds like that's something you're finding as well as balance. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's just like always listening to that like internal compass that I have. And I use that phrase a lot and kind of just 
being really in tune with like, what is it, you know, what feels authentic and true to me, you know, and how I'm living and not necessarily like what I feel like other people want me to be doing with my life. And that's really hard. You know, <laughs> I think everybody in, in some realm or the other, like feels that external pressure and then being like, no, okay, I'm not going to do that because that something else feels better to me. So. Totally. Are, I know that you're using your platform and your mm -hmm. voice and your story to share and, and be vulnerable and, and bring others in and let people know they're not alone. Are there any other projects or things that you're working on to kind of keep that ball rolling? Or is it all yeah, on the platform? I mean, so it, in, it's mainly through like social media platforms now. Um, I do have a grand goal of a book at some point. It's finding time to write it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I do, I mean, I love to write. And, um, so that's something. And then I, there are a few different organizations that I'm getting involved in, um, to try and, uh, really kind of, especially that focus on, you know, like female in sport and, uh, you know, like, and everything around education on eating disorders. And so they're kind of all like early stages in the works though. So I've got to ask because it went so viral during um, like the March Madness brackets for the mm -hmm. basketball players when they were showing like the men's training facility oh God, versus yeah. like the female's training facility. Is that something that you have run into? No pun intended with running <laughs> <laughs> in your training and what it is that you do and, and what your access is to things as a female athlete, as opposed to what you see other people kind of get more handed to them. Yeah, you know, I think that um, running uh, luckily seems to be a little bit more, just because of the nature, especially long distance and like running, you see over 100 miles, you see women actually like beating way more, like a lot of men. Um, so it just, just because like women tend to have like as a generality, like uh, the longer we go, the better we get. Um, and so like in comparison to a man, so it seems to be, there is still, there's a bit more like equality in there. Um, though I do definitely think in terms of like the sponsorship realm, there's, it's still, it's not talked about a lot, but women typically undervalue themselves. Um, and so there's that issue with disparity, uh, between like what men are getting paid, what women are getting paid. There have been races that have higher prize purses for men than for women. Um, and, uh, that luckily like has been remedied in these past few years, but it's, it's taken a while. So, um, we're, we're making progress. We are, but I think there's still some, a ways to go. Absolutely. Um, what is something that you have found most fulfilling being a female athlete in the, these like gnarly, gnarly endurance sports? Um, as, as well as obstacle running. Mm -hmm. You know, I think the thing that is like the most, one of the things that's most fulfilling to me is like seeing the younger generation get into it too. Like one of my favorite things at like all the obstacle races I do with like the Spartan races and stuff, they have like the kids race. And so when I finish my race, I'll always go to like the kids race and watching especially the young girls just go out there and crush and then they're like we're beating all the boys and and it's just i mean it lights my soul on fire i love it you know i love it because i think that 
you know, I, we, I had some opportunities like that when I was young, but not nearly the amounts that, you know, they have today. And so that's really important to me. It's just like seeing that younger generation really embrace it. It's so incredible to see that because it, it makes at least me think like, okay, this is different now. So this can also be different in 20 years, right? Mm -hmm. We can raise girls to focus on what their body can do rather than what it looks like. Like we have that power right now to transform the next generation. Um, and, and that kind of like, pro that propels me forward a lot because I'm like, I don't want young female athletes or just girls and, you know, athlete or aside to feel like they're not at home in their own skin. Mm -hmm. So if people like you can just keep spreading that, that message of acceptance, I mean, there'll be girls all over the place running Spartan races and <laughs> kicking ass in career life, you know, everything. Yeah. I think it's, it's, it's definitely something, you know, like my generation, we were raised in like the fat is awful, fat free nineties, like weight watchers type of era. And I think it impacted everybody, you know, and it impacted. And so I'm like, if we can change the languaging now around food, around our bodies, like it's, it's going to take a long time. I understand that. But I, like, I do have hope that we can change that culture which then can have a massive impact on the n amount of eating disorders, disordered eating that we see. That literally makes me so happy that you said that. It's true. We have such a narrative around <clears throat> the quality of our food being the important thing being whether it's low fat or low carb, whether, and that's, that has literally nothing to do with it's it at all you know it's more about what are the nutrients in those foods like where is it coming from how are you um how are you eating your foods um all of that plays so much of a role in the health of our everyone the health mm -hmm. of our population um and i just i love that you that you said that uh, so we are so thankful so thankful that you took this time to have this conversation with us we have had a blast the past uh, 45 ish minutes here. Um, where can people find you if they want to follow your journey, if they want to help get involved, if they want to cheer you on while you write this book, where can they find you? <laughs> yeah. Uh, you can find me. I'm Instagram. I'm AR Boone 11. I'm on Twitter at Amelia Boone. And then I have a website that occasionally gets updated uh, rarely, but I do put blogs on there and there's actually, I've written a lot about um my eating disorder journey journey also a lot on injuries um and things like that with running um and that is ameliaboonracing.com so. amazing and we'll thank put that in the so show much. notes yeah yeah thank you for having me it's been great